When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Off the Looking Glass. I'm Kate Fagan. I'm Jessica Smetana. And it's a special drop. It's like an alert drop. Ooh. Maybe like a sneaker drop. Oh, yeah. but then no one's going to get it. Everybody's going to take an L on this one. <laughs> I don't think but that's what we want to do. No, no. But welcome to a special edition, a March Madness edition of Off the Looking Glass. Oh, you mean it's not an NCAA tournament version of Off the Looking Glass? No, no, no. We can do it. We can do it, Jess. We can we can put the trademark on it this year. We can do it. This is very exciting. Yes, as you just referenced, yeah. this is the first year that the women's NCAA tournament can be called March Madness, even though when the March Madness trademark was filed, it was filed for both the men's and the women's tournament. But until now... It has never been used as a marketing tool for the women's tournament. Yeah. My favorite part about this story, and most fans will remember that last year, the impetus for this big change of being able to use March Madness was the viral stories that went on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok of the disparities. Let's just call them disparities because it was like an SNL skit. I mean, we could have created it on Off the Looking Glass, honestly. I'm a, a little upset that they beat us to the punch because then all of our subsequent jokes kind of like we're we're being a little too literal when this is what's happening in real life with what we saw with the weight rooms last year at the women's tournament versus the men's tournament. Yeah. My second favorite thing about the women now being, quote unquote, allowed to use March Madness, like you alluded to, is that all the NCAA had to do within, like you said, was, quote unquote, assign the March Madness trademark to the women's side. Like, it was there all along. They basically had to click and drag over to the women's tournament. Like, and, and, they, also, and they also needed a probably a very expensive law firm, mm, which, yes. w- to tell them this. So that's why we have March Madness. But the question, Jess, too, is, do we even need March Madness? Can we come up? I mean, at this point, no. I, I mean, it's like, we don't want your stupid March mm-hmm. Madness name. We can come up with something better. Yeah. I got like, like we could be, we could be like, like, like hooping hysteria. We could totally, why not that? Ooh. Why not that? Hooping his, hooping hysteria is a good one. What about like bracket bonanza? Okay. That's, that's really, that's catchy. I could see that on some t-shirts. Is, is there any, is there any like alliteration that goes with A for April? Cause like some of the games are in April, There's right? There's a so couple in April. Can we take April and, and they can have March? Yeah, we could just get that little sliver, which really maps well onto the, the women's sports experience. The the April annihilations. No, that feels a little violent. Mm, yeah, that's a little violent. You know, I'm starting to realize that March Madness really is the catchiest name yeah. for this tournament. It really does. I mean, and it really pairs well with something about it. Sweet yeah. 16 and Final Four. It really yeah, does go well. Elite Eight. Okay, we're thankful. Thank you for March Madness powers happy to be here okay well we have a whole show we have a whole off the looking glass show for you today which we'll tell you about in a minute but first since the bracket is upon us this whole month of madness why don't we break it down a little bit in in off the looking glass style how should we do that kate obviously no mention of yukon that's they're they're not playing this year yeah we need to go our top pick who we think is going to win this tournament 
And then our dark horse okay. for people who might be like putting some, putting a couple bucks on the women's tournament because they think it's a, a safe place to be. Where are you at with this? I think my top pick is still South Carolina, even though they had a big upset in the SEC tournament last weekend. My dark horse pick? Mm, that's a really good question, Kate, because... There's a lot of really good teams. I wouldn't call Iowa a dark horse, even though they have lost some pretty big games this season, but that would be kind of cool yeah. for them to win a tournament. They haven't done that yet. South Carolina has, so maybe they're my dark horse, even though they're also a favorite. That's how we do it. But I mean, in women's basketball, they haven't won an NCAA title, so I think they qualify as a dark horse. And it's a, it's a pretty good dark horse pick, considering Caitlin Clark could be one of the best players in the country. I mean, that is up for debate, obviously. We've got... Paige Beckers. We've got Boston at South Carolina. So, okay. I'm going to go with, and I'm a little biased because of the extra extra we have today, Ooh. but Stanford is my pick to win the tournament. I, I mean, pick. Haley Jones, they just, I mean, they're coming off of the win last year. There's a lot in the history of Stanford. There's a lot of, um, like, kind of like almost Red Sox bad juju where you almost felt they were cursed for a while. They won a few in the begin, like, in the late 90s. And then they had great players, and they just couldn't win again. But they won last year, and I think they're going back-to-back. My dark horse pick, the team that beat South Carolina in the SEC title game is my dark horse pick, Kentucky. That's a good pick. I I thought about that for a split second, but then I was like, I can't pick two SEC teams. They are the hottest team right now coming into this tournament. Yeah. They've won, what, 10 games in a row? And they've got Kyra Elzey, who knows a little something about winning because she played for Pat Summon at the Lady Vols another favorite of this show. So they've got that, you know, they've got the momentum for March Madness, which I think is something that mm, they Another need. M. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Should we tell the people? Should we tell the people about our special alert March Madness episode today? We should. We have a special interview with Jackie Stiles, who played for Missouri State, made it to the Final Four with the mid-major, the last team to ever do this. We also have an extra extra written by yours truly, about the story of the only time a number one seed has lost to a 16 seed. But I thought I was going to tell one story, but I ended up telling a different story for this extra extra. So stick around for that. I can't wait to hear about that, Kate. This is going to be a great episode, and I feel like March Madness mayhem has begun already on Off the Looking Glass. Yeah, and you know, don't skip the ads. I added a third M there just for us. Yeah, I think we could maybe patent that. We could get those same lawyers to um, send it off and give us the TM. One of the best college basketball players you've ever seen, man or woman. We all watched this player put her team on her shoulders and basically take it places it had never been. She never bragged. She just went on the court and outplayed people. They're calling her Pete Maravich with a ponytail. And the ponytail assassin, as she was called, didn't let anyone down. Jackie's on another planet. She was not focused on records or any kind of personal accolades. It was all about winning. For 16 years, our next guest held the epic record of being the NCAA's all-time leading scorer, dropping 3,393 points, 
during her legendary career at Missouri State, where she also led her team on a Cinderella run to the 2001 Final Four, the last mid-major to make the women's semis. She was then drafted number four by the Portland Fire, where she promptly won WNBA Rookie of the Year. A slew of injuries derailed her pro career, but this guard could shoot from deep, she could get to the rim, she could go right, she could go left, and she had a killer mid-range game. All right, let's do it. Let's bring her on. Jackie Styles. Since we are on the eve of the NCAA tournament, which we can now call March Madness, and by the way, let's start there. I don't know if you've been following that the women's tournament can now label itself March Madness. Do you even remember when you were playing, considering the fact that you couldn't have that logo on the court and some of the disparities that existed between the two tournaments? You know, I did not realize that back when I was playing, to be honest with you, but I was so hyper-focused always at that time of the year on just what our team was trying to accomplish. I mean, laser-like focus and, you know, sometimes our strengths are our weaknesses and that was one of my strengths that I could really focus in, but the house next to me could be on fire and I might not notice it, you know, so I did not realize that that happened back then. Yeah. You had quite a year in 2001 because... I mean, just for our listeners, like just a couple months before the Final Four, you are breaking the NCAA all-time scoring record. Will you take us through, like, maybe it's more than weeks, maybe it's months. What was the lead-up like to breaking that huge record? It was wild. It almost seems like that was a, a separate lifetime, you know, what I experienced through that. But I remember uh, the week before, I know the game before I was kind of, it was a possibility that I could break it at Wichita State, which I'm from Kansas. And so it was a sold out arena, but I had to score almost like 50 some points. But I know Kelsey Plum did that when she broke my record. But, you know, so they thought maybe I could break it. And I remember they hired a professional bodyguard for me at that game because the fans were so crazy that it was hard for me to even warm up. And I'm not ever going to turn down an autograph or, you know, tell somebody no. So they literally had to have a bodyguard so I could warm up and do those things. And then I had this professional bodyguard from that point on. And I, I remember telling my college roommate, no, we are not turning the TV on, no papers, trying to escape from it. And I, I'll never forget, we went and ate at a Taco Bell. It was like a couple of days before I actually broke the record. And we just got mobbed. We couldn't even, you know, go out and eat in public. But that's what was made our career special is how the fans, you know, truly appreciated what we did and they showed up for us. And that drove us to be better and to do more because we wanted to make them proud. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that you lived inside of like a cultural moment. I have a lot of interest in what that feels like. And there's a thing Jess and I talk a lot about on this podcast about how what really drives our interest in sports is like an understanding of the stakes and the storylines of a certain event. And I can't think of a better example than you breaking the scoring record, like for the fans at then Southwest Missouri State, it's like the stakes are really clear for everybody. This is the NCAA all-time scoring record, and we're watching someone like chip away at it and then possibly beat it. And they know you because you've been in town for four years, so they like intimately understand your story. So what is it like when you're walking into an arena with 
10,000 fans and you have a bodyguard and it's like, it is a cultural moment and you are at the heart of it. It was wild. I, I mean, it's hard to put into words what that experience was like. It was something, you know, so special. And what made it so special is the people that surrounded me from the community to my incredible coaches and teammates and just in my family, because you can only accomplish something great if you have amazing people around you that I, I share that honor with them. But it was just so special because I got to do it at a place that gave me so much and so many amazing memories, but I'll never forget to handle all the media. They had this tape on the floor. I remember at shoot around, basically there was 80 different you know pieces of tape to try to organize the media on each baseline. You know, it's like 80 on one baseline, 80 on the other to try to accommodate all the media request. And it was electric. I'll just say that. And I was just praying that my first shot would go in so I could kind of relax and get into the game because I never thought about points or counted my points or anything like that, but I could hear the crowd counting every basket that I had, you know, cause it was just one of those nights. It was just a special night. And you all going to the final four, it's like the history of women's basketball. There's a lot of, I don't know that we even have the term mid-major when you're talking about the origin teams of the game, like the Immaculatus and the Delta States. But I don't know that a mid-major, and you might have a better view on this because of your time in coaching. Does a mid-major at this point in 2022 ever stand a chance in the on the women's side of the game and getting to a Final Four? Well, you know, most people think it's impossible for a mid-major at this point to get to a Final Four. And I think we were actually the last team to do it. Back then we were called Southwest Missouri State. Now we're Missouri State. So it's going to be a very difficult challenge. And I think, you know, sometimes you have to have a little luck. So I think it'll all kind of depend on, you know, the draw of, that a mid-major gets. But, um, you know, they most people think it's impossible now. It has gotten further and further. Like, I, I just think that it will be a true Cinderella if it happens again. And, and honestly, I'm kind of glad I didn't know this, but I spent my last year, two years coaching at Oklahoma and it was my first power five experience. So I grew up in a mid-major as far as where I played. And then I, I grew up in a mid-major as far as coaching. I mean, it was at LMU and I was Missouri state. And then finally I got to coach at a power five and I'm like, Oh my gosh, it made it even more amazing what we did because I saw how the power five traveled and how they fed them nutrition wise, their strength and conditioning is, you know, basically personally, you know, individualized for each player. They have one strength coach for, you know, women's basketball, where we had a strength coach that had numerous sports. I mean, the differences just blew me away. So I'm kind of glad that I didn't know the power five had all those advantages that we didn't have. But yeah, I, I was stunned after I, I got to actually be at a power five school. Okay, let's take that one step further, because I apologize, I don't know the answer to this. But in when you were getting recruited, which would have been like 95, 96 ish, did you go to Southwest Missouri State and could have gone to a power what we now call a power five school? Or were you under recruited? No, I was uh, really heavily recruited, even though I was, you know, from a small town, because somehow I don't even know how I got this invite. Like I was one of 25 to get invited for a USA basketball team the summer before my senior year. And I actually made that team. And so that kind of gave me a lot of national exposure. But um, I, my final four schools were Missouri State, UConn, Kansas State and Oklahoma. But the difference was Missouri State started recruiting me before anyone else. They saw me play my very first AU tournament. And this was just the spring after they had made 
their first final four. She was there to watch older play and just hangs out and says, you know, cause she leaned over and she's like, who's that number five to my dad. And my dad's like, well, that's my daughter. She talked to me after, you know, the game and said, we'd love to have you come to camp. You could one day play division one basketball. So then I started going to camp for five straight summers. And also, you know, another part of that story is I had just lost my youngest sister. She had passed away. And, you know, that was just kind of through a difficult time in my life, but that kind of gave me hope. And I was excited, you know, about the future and, you know, I'm just a really loyal person. So it came down to, there's no way, cause I, they built such a strong relationship with me that I couldn't, you know, go to a Yukon or a Kansas state or an Oklahoma because of the years of recruiting me. Wow. I did not know that it was like between, not just between Yukon and Southwest Missouri state. And you were like, Southwest Missouri state it is. You don't hear this very often. <laughs> no, it no. People are like, I get asked that all the time. Like, and I actually struggled so much. I hate to admit this when I was trying to make the decision because I thought like all the schools would have been a good fit. I, I actually called the psychic hotline. I saw it advertised for so <laughs> many free minutes. And I'm like, hey, I cannot decide where to go to school. These are my three schools. And the psychic's like, well, personally, I'm a Tennessee Lady Vols fan. So I'd like to see you go there. So needless to say, that didn't help. But, you know, it was difficult because no one in my camp or surrounding me thought Missouri State was it best choice for me. I mean, so I had to stand up to a lot of people. I mean, I remember my high school coach and my dad had me sign the letter of intent to play at UConn and I was going to sleep on it. Actually, Pat Summit gave my dad this advice because she had recruited me early on, but I knew a bunch of all Americans were going to go there. And she said, have her sign the letter of intent, sleep on it. If it feels right, have her send it in. I signed the letter of intent to UConn, sleep on it. I knew in my heart it wasn't where I wanted to go. And it was actually like a disappointing day when I said, hey, I want to go to Southwest Missouri State, but ended up being the best four years of my life. I mean, so, you know, you can listen to where everybody else wants you to go, but you have to live with that decision. So you have to follow your heart. And it worked out for me. So, okay, let me put these pieces together. Pat Summit told your dad to have you sign a letter of intent for UConn and sleep on it. Was she just consulting you or was she saying, have her sign a letter to Tennessee and sleep on it? <laughs> well, so she had offered me a scholarship. We took a visit there, but I knew like Tamika Catchings, you know, who, uh, Tamika Randall, Ace Clement, all these players that had played USA basketball were already committed there. And I'm like, I don't know where I fit in on this picture. You know, I don't think there's enough basketballs to go around for all of us. And so I ended up telling them no pretty early in the process. Well, she was just such a class act that she was actually giving my dad advice because I was struggling so much. Like I said, I called a psychic hotline, you know, I mean, I was so hard at that moment. And so for her to, you know, that's the class of person that she was, she took the time, gave my dad that advice, said, Hey, have her sign her first choice. And at that time it was UConn and here that was their biggest competitor, obviously. And uh, I slept on it. I knew it wasn't, you know, where my heart led me. So at what point did your dad admit that you'd made the right college decision? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, he definitely believes I, I made the right uh, decision. But uh, I'll never forget my high school coach when I decided I was going to go to Missouri State. I said, you know what? I bet you $1,000 I'll play in a Final Four 
at Missouri State. I mean, I had that kind of belief and certainty, you know, when I was entering as a freshman at Missouri State. It's like, oh, I'll definitely take that bet. So needless to say, I'm a thousand dollars richer, but no, uh, I didn't take his money. But it was really cool because my high school coach came to the documentary premiere of the documentary a week ago and was on stage with me. So I got to reconnect with my high school coaches, my college coaches. It, It was just a lot of fun to relive those memories. So when you broke the record in 2001, one little detail is that Missouri State flew in the then record holder, Patricia Hoskins. And so she witnessed you breaking her record. Then that was 2001. And then fast forward 16 years, and you know that Kelsey Plum at Washington is approaching breaking your record. What was your perspective on watching her and how you wanted to show up for Kelsey as it approached that moment for her? Well, I truly believe that maybe I put that in her head that that was a possibility because when I first took my first college coaching job at LMU, I took it in July. So this is the heavy recruiting period. And she was one of the first games I watched and she's number 10. I was number 10. And I was like, oh my gosh, I saw myself in her the way, you know, she scored as far as like she choose the three, she liked the mid range game, which is kind of a lost art. You know, you don't see it as much. She would take it all the way to the rim. She could go right or left. And so I was like, I told my coach, I don't care. Maybe we don't have a shot at LMU at, at getting in her list or whatever. But I said, I got to call her. I just, I have to call her. And I said, and I never say, I never would say this out loud, but I said, Hey, I'm the all-time leading scorer, and I would love to help you break my record. And I truly believed at that moment that she could do it. It wasn't a recruiting pitch. I, I believe that she, I, I just saw it in her. And, you know, then, of course, she does it. So, you know, I, I definitely celebrated her because, man, she's so deserving because her work ethic, the way she worked, and, you know, she's 5'8 as well. We're the same height. We took a picture together, and we're pretty much the same height, <laughs> kind of similar build. So she worked her tail off to achieve what she did. Hi, this is Kelsey Plum. Um, I actually do remember when Jackie Styles reached out to me. She was a coach at LMU, and I remember her just calling me. Um, I really didn't have interest in going to LMU, but I knew who she was. I remember watching her when she, you know, played Duke and was in the tournament, and how she took her team to the Final Four. And uh, she told me she saw a lot of what uh, she did in me, and that she thought I could break the record. Um, break her record which is obviously like a huge honor and um, what was even cooler I think was when the record did get broken uh, she sent me she sent me a video tribute um, and she just said like congratulations um, you know I'm just she said she was honored that someone broke it that she knew and that she followed and it was really cool it was cool to be a part of history um, and hopefully you know there's someone to come along, maybe Caitlin Clark, to break it, and I can do the same. So it's kind of a cool little camaraderie connection with women's basketball. Um, but yeah, she was super gracious about it, and uh, I was just I was just really um, honored that she uh, saw that in me at 18. How did she react? Do you remember on this on this call as a teenager and you telling her she can break the NSA scoring record? You know, well, she was kind of at at first like, you know, really? Are are you serious? I said, no, I'm serious. I I truly believe that you can do it. And her mom said that, you know, it was really hard to tell me no, because 
you know, I think she kind of felt that connection and the the belief I had in her, but obviously LMU was not the right choice for her, but, you know, I was always a fan of hers, even though I didn't get to coach her, you know, through her, her college coaching career, it was just really fun to watch. Cause I don't know. I've always loved watching scores, you know, I've just, you know, I'm a magnet to somebody that can put the ball in the basket the way she could. When we were talking, we had Sue Bird on last season and she was coming from Yukon and then to Seattle and you were coming from Southwest Missouri State, and I'm making actually a comparison to UConn in, in the way that you were both playing in front of sold-out crowds with a lot of media attention. What was it like transitioning to the W that first year when you're drafted by Portland? How would you articulate the differences between what the experience was like at Southwest Missouri State and then stepping into the W at Portland? Yeah, so it was wild because you know, here I am this rookie that hasn't proven anything, but I'm coming off this like Cinderella final four run. And and when I actually broke the record, people still thought, well, I only kind of scored those points because I went to a mid-major, but then we had made that advancement in the final four to the final four. And then people were like, got to see us, you know, we were on national television. So then coming in as a rookie, I'll never forget all the media wanted to talk to me. And that made me so uncomfortable. I'm like, I haven't earned anything. I haven't played a game in the WNBA. So it was actually really wild initially. And I can remember kind of feeling the pressure and wondering, okay, can I play at this level? Because people questioned whether I could because of my size. I was a two guard and not a point guard. And I was only 5'8". Usually the you know, the wings in the WNBA are six foot and over. So I kind of felt a lot of pressure and I've used to be in like the underdog role, but then I kind of finally settled in and had a breakout game and realized, okay, I can play at this level, but it, it was wild just because the media kind of carried over from the final four run. Here's a little story Jackie told us after the interview about being in the WNBA in those first years when they would still stay at NBA level hotels but they didn't have NBA level money to eat. I'll tell you a funny story. So a small town girl, you know, getting to stay in the Ritz and the W as well. One day I didn't quite eat like after the game. Sometimes I was so like hyped up that I couldn't eat right away. So I went to my trainer. I was like, oh, I'm just gonna have a protein bar. And a couple of my teammates were there and they're like, we're hungry too. There's a Wendy's not too far away. And we didn't want to order, you know, room service at the Ritz. Like, you know, that's like way too expensive. We're gonna, you know, pocket our hundred dollars, you know, for travel money. So they're like, let's just get a, a cab and go to that Wendy's. Well, we didn't know the Ritz doesn't allow cabs to pull up to their entrance. So the concierge was like, hey, ladies, uh, your car's here. And it was a limo. So we took a limo and ordered off the Wendy's late night window. <laughs> I kid you not. And the limo driver's like, is this the only place you girls want to go? And we're like, yep. So by the time we took a limo to Wendy's, it might have been cheaper to order, you know, room service at the Ritz. But it was funny because I ran into one of my teammates on the road a few years ago. We hadn't seen each other since we played together. And that was the first thing she said to me. She's like, do you remember when we took a limo to the Wendy's? You know, it was just one of those experiences. So... Okay, real talk. 
Now that college athletes can get paid using their name, image, and likeness, it's more important than ever for the stars of the NCAA to take back their power. That's why we're introducing the Power Card from the NCAA, the first banking card designed specifically for college athletes to manage their new financial windfalls. So how does it work? Simple. Since players make all the money on licensing now, which we're totally cool with. In fact, we love that you're getting the money instead of us. We've simplified the process of empowering you to take control. First, all of the money that used to go to us but now goes to you, which, again, we're totally happy about, is placed securely in a Power Card account, absolutely free of charge, except for a small monthly fee. Anytime you make an additional deal involving your name, image, or likeness, we'll automatically transfer the money, with minimal direct deposit charges, into that account. Once it's there, you can send money anytime, anywhere in the world, with only a small transfer fee and a second, slightly larger transfer fee. And also one little additional fee we're calling the double transfer fee fee, which is a fee we charge anytime you incur two transfer fees, which is every time you transfer money. Don't need to transfer money? That's fine too. A simple non-transfer fee gives you complete freedom to leave your money right where it is. The NCAA isn't like a bank with all those hidden expenses because all of our charges are right out in the open. Like our out-of-network fee, when you try to buy or exchange money with another financial institution. An insufficient funds fee, if you go below a certain balance that only we know the exact amount of. An anytime fee, which is just when we take some of your money, usually in the middle of the night, on a Sunday. Want to move your money to a different bank? No problem. You're free to do so after a simple, how dare you treat us like this fee. You don't understand the incredible opportunity this university is giving you to get a good education fee. I mean, these kids are so ungrateful. Fee. And when you inevitably run out of money and want to buy a sandwich after practice, you can use your power card to borrow more money from the NCAA at only 65% interest, compounded every eight minutes. Want to avoid all those fees? No problem. Simply put your money into the NCAA Power Savings Account, which guarantees 2% interest for male athletes, 1.5% interest for UConn women's basketball players, and 1% interest for female athletes. Because you and I both know how hard it is to monetize women's sports. <laughs> the Power Card from the NCAA, because it's your money even though it used to be our money, which again, we're totally cool with. So you should have the power, minus a reasonable 94 to 105% cut for us. Take back your power. The NCAA power card is technically not legal, but who cares? We're the NCAA and we can do whatever we want. Not a member of the FDIC because the feds are currently investigating us for like 300 different things. Most sports fans know the headline. And if they don't, it usually at least rings a bell. That time a number 16 seed beat a number one seed. That shocking game in 1998 when little Harvard toppled mighty Stanford. Well, the school with more history than any in the United States has pulled off a piece of basketball history. The first win ever by a number 16 seed over a number one seed. Before UMBC beat Virginia in the men's tournament in 2018, so for 20 years, Harvard's stunning victory was the only time a 16 beat a 1. And it happened on the women's side. 
The thing about this game is that not many people know the backstory. Exactly how Stanford, at that time a perennial title contender, managed to lose on their home court, on the game's biggest stage, to a scrappy little Ivy. Well, it took a whole lot of terrible, horrible, no good, bad things to happen to Coach Tara Vanderveer's team. As well as a generational player flying below the radar across the country in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Here's how the story begins. We were really playing well. Our last Pac-10 game, we were playing at Oregon State, and um, we had a lead, so all the starters went out. The subs lost the lead. Tara put us back in. And then I tore my ACL my freshman year. So as soon as I did, I went after a loose ball. I turned. I knew what happened. That was current Phoenix Mercury head coach Vanessa Nygaard, who was a star senior on that year's Stanford team. And this was really the story I originally set out to tell. How first Nygaard, then Stanford's other star, Kristen Fokel, went down with ACL tears within days of each other. And the two were combining for 34 points a game. And the team coming into town, they had the aforementioned generational player, Allison Feaster, the leading scorer in the country, a player who would go on to become a WNBA All-Star and play a decade in the W. Look, Allison Feaster is the best player, maybe Bella from Princeton, that, that's ever come out of the Ivy. She's the best player. So, And it was a different time. The CD may not have been right, but we lost. My plan was to go deeper into all this, how Harvard was coached by Delaney Smith, who just this year retired after 40 seasons, and how her team was pissed when they saw the NCAA committee seated them at 16. And how even when they arrived at Maple's Pavilion for the opening round game, one of the locker room attendants said, Welcome to the world of real basketball. Typical locker room fodder, you know. But then something happened. When I was talking to Vanessa about this game, I became mesmerized about how devastating this game was to her. And still is. Rewind to 1998, to right after she's torn her ACL. And she had every intention of playing anyway. She absolutely would have played on a torn ACL if they'd let her. And the doctor was very much like, I cannot let you play. As a professional, I can't let you play. And I was like, I don't care. Remember, she was a senior. This was it. This was everything. Stanford had been to three consecutive Final Fours, and they thought they were definitely going to win that year's NCAA title. So they like fitted me with a brace. And then I think that we started practice that week. And the first practice we got back, Kristen Focal tore her ACL in practice, like the first practice. And so once she got hurt, then everyone was very much more like, you are not playing. We're not doing this. And then it was kind of like a bummer week. My birthday's right in the middle of it. My birthday's Sunday. So every year my birthday comes along with this story. And every year people like me, we ask her to relive it. And it's like this memory, it's painful for her. She was 21 years old when this happened. And on the day of the game, she suits up and she puts on a brace. She thinks she should play. She thinks she could help, even with a torn ACL. And she's angry when the coaches don't let her. I wanted to play so bad. And so for a long time, I held on like a lot of anger towards Tar and the coaching staff for not letting me play. Like if for some way I was going to help win, like I wasn't going to help. In my mind, I was always going to help, and they didn't let me play. And I had a lot of anger about it for a while. Eventually, with time and perspective, she realized the coaches never really had a choice. 
that there was only one decision that made any sense. Of course she couldn't and shouldn't have played. So the anger faded, but not that other harder to define feeling that some athletes come to know intimately. Maybe what Vanessa feels is kin to the emotion an Olympian lives with, clipping the last hurdle, or leading into the final turn but pulling up with a lame hamstring. This idea of a dream, of destiny, being cruelly snatched, despite how much you poured into the pursuit, despite being within arm's reach of the goal. It's that feeling about, that basketball feeling of like, I love basketball, but it doesn't always love me back. Like all my life, um, you know, it doesn't change when you become a coach. It doesn't change when you're a player, but I was so mentally entrenched. I can go right back to that moment. I can go right back into that feeling. They play the clips every time and I see myself sitting there. That's the voice of the legendary Ann Myers, who called the game. And as the camera panned to the Stanford bench, it pans past Vanessa, whose head is down, hands clenched together. I just remember sitting on the bench and just not wanting to leave. Um, yeah, I remember being a dramatic teenager. I, mean, I wasn't quite a teenager, but I'm sure still in the teenage mentality. I put my uniform on because I thought I would maybe go in the game and not wanting to take my uniform off. Three last three years, they've been to the final four. They're not going to see it this year. Even Ann Meyer's voice, she's a longtime WNBA executive in Phoenix, implanted itself into Nygaard's mind, attached itself to this brutal memory. Anytime I see her, I kind of think of that. I'm sure she doesn't, but I just saw recently and it made me think of it. A couple years ago, I was coaching and my knee swelled up and I went and got an MRI and I I had torn my ACL again and everyone was like, oh my God, I feel so bad for you. And like, it didn't matter because there's, I don't have to play in a game. It didn't matter. I didn't even get it repaired. I did some like bone marrow injection or something, but it brought back that, even that idea that someone said, oh, your ACL's torn brought back that really intense feeling of like, wow, this really sucked. I don't know exactly what I mean, but I asked Vanessa if she's come to terms with it, the loss and how it happened. I don't really want to come to terms with it because it meant so much to me. Like I was so all in in every single way. Like if I came to terms with it, I think that would maybe say it held a less important space for me. And that time I had with those people, I put every ounce of myself into it. So I don't want to let go of it. You know, does it suck to every year have to come back and tell the story and see the clip of myself? Oh, here it comes. Um, <laughs> Here it comes. Here comes the clip. It's like the pain of it reminds her how much she cared, how much that time and those people and that dream mattered. It was precisely because she was so sure that that year was their year that she couldn't leave the bench after the loss on that long ago day. I never thought we weren't going to win a national championship. You know how they say misery loves company? That's probably usually true. But this story isn't exactly about misery, not quite. It's about the brutal beauty of sports and about how even though athletes can control so much about the game, the universe is always reminding us that we are never, not ever, the sole masters of our fate. 
And so the answer is no. No, Vanessa Nygaard does not want company. She doesn't want another 16 seed to be the one. This, this is hers. I've had a doctor tell me like every step you run is one less step you walk in your life at this point, which, and for a million percent, I do all of it again. I don't care about the degradation of my body at all as an athlete. Stanford speechless, Harvard beside themselves, 71-67, our final. I don't, I don't think I want it to happen again. I mean, look, I'll hold on to our bit of history. I'll hold on to my place. That was a uplifting story because, you know, everyone loves an upset, but also really sad from the other perspective. I feel like whenever there's a huge March Madness upset, I root for chaos. So I'm like, oh, this is great. Like, good for those underdogs. And then you hear this story and all this heartbreak and these players who still can't, like, bear to witness this game. Um, yeah, that's there's two sides to every coin, man. We, we, we always focus on what it felt like to be the, the winner in these like David Goliath stories, but I thought it was a spin to actually see how this particular player at Stanford, Vanessa, has been carrying the weight of this loss with her and how it's really shaped her emotionally and sticks with her. So an uplifting Mayhem March Madness monologue that I offered. <laughs> March Madness Mayhem monologue. Yeah, that's what I went with. Many thanks. <laughs> All right, let's tell the you people. You know what? I'm regretting that we didn't try to do this entire episode just speaking in M words. Maybe moving forward. I mean, we can't do it all, but if we get 80%, I feel like we're succeeding. Why is we always we always pick 80% and then it's like some impossible threshold? When really it's what cross. we mean is 15%. Do we have momentum now for this monumental meshing up of many humans who helped us make March Madness. Oh, there you go. Carl Scott, you, Kate, for writing this extra extra. Me, for mm -hmm. producing this. A big thank you to Olympic gold medalist and Las Vegas Aces star and reigning NCAA all-time leading scorer, Kelsey Plum, for that voice memo, which you heard in our rabbit hole. And a thank you also to Brent Huff, who's the director of the documentary, The Jackie Styles Story. We sampled a little bit of that audio from the trailer of his documentary. We need to thank Nameless Numberhead for the fake ad, as well as a little shout out to Mike Schur, who chipped in, who chipped in. Oh, yeah. another M name. Mike. He's going mm -hmm. with the theme, Mike I love it. making edits many <laughs> times on that Nameless Numberhead fake ad. So if you thought to yourself, man, I can't think of another M, but that was a great fake ad. It's because Mike Schur, helped us make it many thanks to yeah, him many many that's it you got any more m's for us i think that's Dang, it it's harder than you think so thank you ncaa it is really hard madness. i mean i think i'll go eat some m&ms i'm gonna have a moco macchiato okay sounds like a plan see you next time
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.